We have been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. Please join with me in prayer. Lord, I ask that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight as we open up your holy word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My senior year in college, uh, at Covenant College, I had six other roommates, and Covenant College is uh, the denominational college for the PCA. Four of my roommates, or four of us, myself included, uh, became pastors in the PCA. And although all of us, or most of us, were headed toward the ministry, uh, we were not church mice so to speak. Uh, We were pretty loud. We liked to have a lot of fun, a lot of practical jokes. I was also the resident assistant on my hall. And so when it came for my graduation day, I had a lot of loud supporters in the crowd. My parents are here. They may be able to remember this. Uh, my graduation was held on the lawn out in front of the uh, the chapel at Covenant College. And after we walked across and received our diploma, we were supposed to walk back, walk in front of everybody, hang a left, and walk down the center aisle to return to our seats. Uh, when I received my diploma, all of a sudden such a loud roar continued beyond all decorum. And it just continued after I received my diploma. Wes, Wes, and and I'm just going, what in the world is happening? I wasn't expecting it. So as I walked down the steps, I became very interested in where all the commotion was coming from. It was somewhere back in the back, and I forgot to hang a left and go down the center aisle. I just kept walking right by everybody. It looked to everybody else out in the crowd that I'd got my diploma and I was going home. <laughs> and so um, about 15 feet, 20 feet after that, I came to myself, realized that I had missed my turn and had to turn around and walk back. 2,000 people were laughing their heads off at me. And there was nothing I could do about it. I just had to live with it. Um, I was so embarrassed. For two two years or more, I would find myself talking to myself about ways that I could have have uh, come to myself a little quicker, um, and how I could have changed what I did. But there was there was just nothing that I could do about it. Uh, nothing I could do to reverse time. Nothing I could do to have a do-over. Now I'm able to laugh about it. In fact, it's one of my fond memories. Wouldn't like to repeat it. Uh, I tell this story because it's a fun way to introduce a very unpleasant subject. All of us have done things in our lives that we wish we could have a do-over. All of us have regrets that cling to us and that we can't let go. I'm speaking of regrets that are not mere embarrassments. I'm speaking of decisions we've made, things we've said or done that hurt other people uh, and hurt them deeply 
or even uh, things we've done uh, that resulted in long-standing harm to ourselves. Many of these regrets remain with us, and they are so upsetting that we can't bear to talk with other people about these regrets. I'm very confident that every one of us has these types of regrets hidden away in the closets of our souls. Since we can't go back and rewind history, since we don't get a do-over, how can we deal with these regrets? How are we supposed to deal with them? Is there any hope? Are we just to have, are we simply, uh, to live with them? Some try and answer these questions and rid themselves of their regrets by drugs and alcohol. Um, others try and punish themselves. Still others uh, go see a counselor. I would assume there are many hidden regrets that lay at the root of many suicides. Brothers and sisters, God's way of dealing with regrets is a much better way. From the perspective of the two chapters of the first two chapters in Ecclesiastes, Solomon would would say that there's no hope. Once you've done something, there's no hope of going back and doing it again. So look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. He says, "I have seen everything that is done under the sun, And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Uh, Notice here that uh, Solomon is speaking from the perspective of under the sun, he says in verse 14. Uh, Let me read that again. I have seen everything that is under the sun, Behold, it is all vanity and a striving after the wind. Solomon here, he's speaking of the impossibility of gaining wisdom in a fallen world without, without acknowledging the Creator. But I think we can also apply our sins and our regrettable mistakes to the context of verse 15. When you've made a crooked turn in your life, How can you make it truly right again if God is not in the equation? He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. And so what if you have made one of those crooked turns to the right or to the left, away from God's righteousness? Maybe you've made a crooked turn against a family member, or against another individual. How can you truly make it right again without God in the equation? Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, Solomon purposely left God out of the equation. When I preached on Ecclesiastes 1 a few weeks ago, I made the point that something that once something is truly bent out of shape or made crooked, it's impossible impossible to make it perfectly straight again. 
the old metal, metal car antenna I used as an example. Once you bend it, you know, you can attempt to straighten it out, but it's never, it's still going to have the, the bend in it. Or you even can take a McDonald's straw, once bent and made crooked, can never regain uh, its perfectly straight shape. Only God can refit them and reshape them into perfection again. And that points us to our hope for escaping escapes. You will remember that although chapters 1 and 2, Solomon left God out of the picture, chapter 3 is all about God. God is front and center in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He is the sovereign God over time. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven because God is sovereign over every season. He is sovereign over every matter under heaven. Chapter 3, verse 1. He determined the time of your birth. He has already determined the time of your death. Chapter 3, verse 2. Everything in verses 2 through 8, in this long litany of time to do this, a time to do that. Everything in, in verses 2 through 8, Solomon is telling us, has already been determined by God. You go on to verse 9. Your work or your toil has meaning because God has ordained the work that you are doing. Your life has meaning because God has given you your life. Every human life has meaning because God has created every human life that has ever come into existence. Verse 11 goes on to say that because God is sovereign over our life and over our times, then everything is beautiful in its time. The sovereignty and lordship of God is underlying everything that Solomon says in chapter 3. God is ruling our lives, and because He loves us, we can trust Him in everything He does. That's the underlying application of all of chapter 3. Is He in control of your life? Does He love you? Then you can trust Him Regardless, it truly does come down to faith. It truly comes, does come down to trusting God. Because as Solomon tells us in the second half of verse 11, God has not allowed us to see the full scope of God's plan. He says uh, there, the second half of verse 11, we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end was making the point last week. We'd sure like to know what He's doing. We'd like to know the full purpose of God for our life. We'd like to know the time that we die. We'd like to know how much time we have here on earth. We'd like to know every circumstance and every implication of every circumstance that God has for us. We'd like to know what He's doing in our loved one's lives. But it says in verse 11 that He simply has not given to us to know those things. 
like we look up, we're unable to see into heaven and see what God's plan is. We know ultimately His plan is to redeem us through Jesus Christ. We know ultimately that His plan was to love us unconditionally and send His Son to be our Savior. We know ultimately that He is working all things together for our good. But we don't know the specifics. We don't know the details. But boy, we sure would like to know them. And so we need to trust in God that everything He does is beautiful in its own time. It probably bears repeating what I said last week. To believe that all that God does is beautiful takes faith. Because a lot that God does is frankly not pleasant. Dealing with, t- with temptation and sin is not pleasant. Mourning the death of a loved one is not pleasant. Growing old and suffering the arthritis, digestive issues and general weakness in our muscles is not pleasant. But all of these things are part of God's beautiful plan for our lives. And so that sets us up for verses 14 and 15. Verses four, verse 14 essentially says what I've just been saying. God has determined unchangeably everything that has happened. If your life and your times are in God's hands, then that means that your life and your times are not ultimately in your own hands. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. Far from being a puppet master that wants to control our lives, God exercises His control, His sovereignty, so that we would fear Him. Or as the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 17, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. God's sovereignty is a gracious display of His love for sinful humanity that has turned its back on Him. So let me ask you this morning. Have you found Him? Do you fear Him or do you disregard Him? Do you trust in Him or do you trust in yourself? Do you love Him or do you reject Him? That's essentially what Solomon is saying here. God has determined the boundaries of our lives. He has determined the details of our lives. All that we would fear Him. All that we would love Him. All that we would trust Him. Now, if we stopped at verse 14... It would seem as if everything is predetermined and therefore there's nothing we can do about it. And frankly, in an ultimate bottom line sense, and Solomon, 
here in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's dealing with ultimate bottom line issues. He's looking at life from the bottom line. Ultimately, we can do nothing about God's sovereign decisions. If He has unalterably predetermined the day of your death, as the Bible clearly says that He has, or Psalm 139 just came to mind, all the words that are on our tongue, God knows them completely. All the days of our life, are written in His book before one of them comes to be. Your life, your birth, your death, they've all been determined by God. How can you change them? And so, in an ultimate bottom line sense, we cannot do anything about God's sovereign decisions. Now, Solomon recognizes that we have a personal responsibility He recognizes that we are not robots, uh, but for the sake of his arguments, for the sake of his examination of life from a a bottom-line sense, what Solomon has done is he's laid aside our personal responsibility. He wants us face-to-face with God. He wants us face-to-face with our Creator who has our life completely in His hands. He lays that aside so that to help us focus on the sovereign rule of God over the totality of our lives. Now, I know some of you might be grousing because of the one-sided picture of God's sovereignty. We affirm God is 100% sovereign. We also affirm that man is 100% responsible. How those two things work together is a mystery. There are things about God that are simply going to be mysteries, a mystery to we finite people. You can't fit the infinite God into our to our pea brains. But He fits very nicely into the heart by faith. The Bible affirms God's sovereignty. The Bible affirms man's responsibility. And those two things work together with God's sovereignty having the priority. So I want to affirm that. But at the same time, I want you to consider that God, if God were not sovereign, there would be no hope for any of us. If God did not take the initiative and do all that needed be done for our salvation, we would have no hope. The morbid picture of Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and chapter 2 would be the end of the road. But God indeed is sovereign. Consider this. If God did not exercise His sovereign will by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, into history, where would we be? Think about this. Without any cooperation from humanity, God sent Jesus Christ into our world to redeem sinful humanity. 
Humanity did not ter- determine the time of Christ's coming. Humanity did not ter- determine the means by which He would send His Son into the world. Humanity did not even receive Him when God sent Him to us. He came unto His own, and His own did not receive Him. Except for those whom God had prepared to receive Him, the rest of humanity rejected Him. But God so loved the world of sinful humanity that in spite of us, He sent His one and only beloved Son. This is the message of Christmas. In spite of us, in spite of our sins, in spite of our rebellion and rejection of God, He sent His own Son into the world on that blessed night to be born into this world, to be rejected and hated by humanity, that He might go to that awful cross and be our Savior. God sovereignly sent His Son to be our Savior with no help for us. In fact, He had to disregard our hatred of Him to send His Son. But because God loves us so much that He would give to us His Son, that means that you can trust Him with your life. That means that you can trust Him with your future. It also means you can trust Him with your past. You know, we asked the question at the beginning of the sermon, how can we deal with our regrets if we cannot go back and rewind history and get a do-over? Verse 15 gives us the answer. Verse 15 says, that which is already has been. Remember, he's speaking in a poetic sense, he is he's he's speaking uh, not um, not in prose, but in uh, a poetic way of speaking. So that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. You know, we've heard the first part of verse fifteen already. We heard it back in Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse nine. Solomon said, "What has been." is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. So this is the same thing that Solomon says here in our passage, except he left off this phrase, um, this final depressing phrase about there being nothing new under the sun, and he replaces it then at the end of verse 15 with God seeks what has been driven away. The NIV translates this last phrase as God will call the past to account. Without going into all all the details in the interest of time, I think the NIV misses the mark by about a thousand miles in regard to this translation. The idea, rather, because everything's couched in God and it's couched in God's blessing, the idea is that God seeks what is past to recover the past. Verse 15 is a poetic way of saying that God seeks the things we've done in the past and instead of our past being vanity or something that's been done under the sun or something that has been done in the past and left there, he says God seeks the things in the past so that by His grace 
He will recover and restore the things that we have no control over. Once our words leave our mouths, we lose control over them. Once we act toward another person, we lose control of how that person will respond to our actions. And God's saying, He seeks our past to restore our past. Well, how does He do that? Well, first of all, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so that He might forgive us of our past sins. The Bible says that He takes our past sins, He throws them as far as the the east is from the west, and remembers them no more. He says that He takes our sins, He tosses them behind His back so that He can't see them anymore. He says He takes our sins, He drowns them in the depths of the sea to be remembered no more. He takes them and He throws them on the ground and He crushes them and grinds them up to nothing underneath the heel of His His feet so that they are no more. He forgives us our sins. But that's only the first part of how He deals with our past. The second half, and what Solomon really has in mind here in this passage, in regard to God's sovereignty, He can reverse our regrets. Words we said in the past to hurt, um, words we said in the past to hurt others, things we've done to manipulate others, decisions we've made that have been ended up being very crooked turns in our lives. God is able to straighten those things out and restore them, because He can turn all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Now, He requires that we trust Him. Trusting Him means entrusting Him with the reins of our lives. It means trusting, uh, trusting Him means repenting of directions in our lives that lead in paths contrary to His commandments. Trusting Him means humbling ourselves to admit that we have made a mess of our life or of our relationships. It may also mean letting go of your pride to ask someone for forgiveness whom you've mistreated. God can take the crooked things in our lives, the crooked ways we've gone astray, and turn out and turn them to be instruments of His grace and His good in our lives. In saying this, God doesn't want to beat us down. Rather, He exercises His sovereignty in our lives for our good and for our happiness and for His glory. So, brothers and sisters, trust Him. Trust Him. He loves you. He is worthy of your trust. I want to conclude by... um, giving you an encouraging story of how God protected me from an embarrassment that was a thou- would have been a thousand times worse than uh, what happened at my graduation. Every time the, the Atlanta Falcons come to play the Buccaneers here in Tampa, and if the game's not on Sunday afternoon, I have a friend that will uh, give me a volunteer job so that I can go to the, the game and watch for free. 
And this past Monday night, the Falcons played the Buccaneers on Monday night football. He got me a job as one of the people who would take the that big flag that stretches across the field. I think it's like 120 feet long. Um, he got me a job to be one of those people who would unfurl that flag for the national anthem. Uh, first time I've had that job. On the field, Monday night football. Now, before the game, we practiced. We went out on the field. We practiced. And I had the job of being one of the people that held one of the, the rungs of the flag and sprinted down the field uh, near the sideline to unfurl the flag. But then afterwards, after we practiced, we went our different way, and then we came back at a specified time before the game to uh, to do it for real. And as I was lining up, another guy jumped in my place. Um, I guess he wanted to be one of the people that ran down the field because there were other people that just had to stand there and hold the flag, but you're on the field. So um, I had to be one of the people then that held the flag while the other people ran. I was a bit irritated. I was also a little fearful because I hadn't practiced for this. You know, I guess I need practice to stand still, but... Um, I didn't want to leave anything to chance. So when we went on uh, to the field to unfurl the flag, we were standing on the visitor sideline within arm's length of the players. The visitor sideline, the Atlanta Falcons. I am Falcons fan. Uh, so yeah, I was really happy. There was this other guy that was about my age. He kept fist bumping me the whole time. He said, I can't believe this. There's nothing better than this. You know what went through my mind every time he kept fist bumping me and saying that? I wanted to say, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. <laughs> but I was too happy. <laughs> so when it came time to unfurl the flag, all the, the Falcons players stepped up to the, the sideline. And so as you sprinted down the field, you would have been within inches of the players. And just as the signal was given for the, the flag runners to start sprinting down the, down the field, um, a referee stepped from behind the players and stepped out in front of them. And at the very moment that this guy who had stepped in my place uh, was running down the field, the, the referee stood, stepped out. Big collision. It was awful. The guy... Uh, who had taken my place, he hit the field like a sack of potatoes. Uh, and he was underneath the flag, and he couldn't get up. It was like four or five seconds before he could get up. I promise I did not laugh. I did not say it, it serves you, you, you right, I, because I was so um, just within myself saying, that could have been me. And I felt so bad for him. You know, if he had, if he had not jumped into my place, that would have been me sprawled out in front of 60,000 people. God was gracious to me. The other guy, God's sovereign purpose was also worked out in his life as well. Whether God sends blessing or hardship into your life, you can trust Him. He is good. He loves his children, your life is in His hands. Let's pray together. Father, we look to You and we thank You 
that our life indeed is in Your hands. Help us to trust You. Lord, we, we live by sight, not by faith so often. We want to take the reins of our life. We want to drive it according to our wisdom. And we always find out with red faces later that Your way is always best. Lord, give us faith to trust in You this Christmas season. Give us faith to live our life uh, in Your hands for this upcoming year and the rest of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.